0: Postponements, postponements, postponements. It's a great shame that one of the highlights of the season, Manchester United at home to Leeds United, has been postponed with policing concerns due to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II in London. Several games in the capital go ahead this weekend while our game in the Northwest is off. So this week on the Manchester United Weekly Podcast, we'll talk quickly about the win in Moldova for Eric Reds and what I made of the Eastern European country, which was fascinating. And then we've got loads more to dive into. Our patrons have sent us a great selection of questions. So we'll talk in detail about Marcus Rashford about VAR and about United Women's opening day victory over Reading and the future of the Women's Super League I'm Harry Robinson with Jack Tate as always and let's get stuck in oh uh, there'll also be a youth and loan roundup but first uh, Moldova Jack, we, we don't need to talk about the match too much because apart from the first half I mean the first half had a maybe we should very quickly talk about Jaden sancho's lovely finish yeah and then we could talk a bit about Moldova and and what a strange trip it was but yeah great, a great goal from Sancho yeah
1: he took it unbelievably well I mean I think the first half for me the two two takeaways were Sancho taking that goal well and just I, I feel like Sancho is he's quite a a non-archetypal modern winger in that I feel like modern wingers everything they do is, is sort of highlight grabbing you know like you can't fail to notice everything that a winger does but Sancho is really the complete opposite of that like he can have he can have a good game and and he wouldn't pop up on any highlights yeah. anywhere you could sort of go through the game and you couldn't really remember anything that he did but he still did everything well Yeah, and it is just different to, to sort of most modern wingers and I thought he was he was good in the first half Took his goal very well. And and then the other takeaway for me, honestly, was just yet again, how important Ericsson is for us. Yep. Like just for the umpteenth time already this season seemed to just make our entire team tick and it sort of makes you worry what we'd be like without him, but not going to worry about that too much for now because while we have him and while he's starting every game, we look a far better team when he's pulling the strings.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Varane good as well. And, and Martinez. And yeah. it, there, were no, there weren't many... There were no new takeaways from this, were there? And the second half was a, a just a completely pointless spectacle. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the, I, the only
1: I, other thing actually that I would take away from it on the pitch is, and this wasn't so much this game, more more just a continuation of what we've already seen. Just how how big of a difference having Dallow at right back yeah. has made going forward this season already. Not not that he's great. There's still a lot that could be improved in his game, but. Just having someone that's a bit more comfortable on the ball with sort of maybe makes some more intelligent runs going forward than wan does. It it does make our team so much more balanced than it was yeah. before. a nice
0: a nice couple of moments. Um, Sancho's celebration with the the shin pads he was given by a kid a few days ago through a car window was a really nice touch from him. He came, he also came over. Um, the United fans came over to the away section at the end of the game and Sancho looked like he'd forgotten but which was just getting his water bottle and then he came over and was kind of the last to stay there and just stayed there for a little bit with a, a nice bit of applause which was also a, a kind of deserved after a good start to the season a deserved bit of individual recognition for him from the United support because he hasn't got his own... and um, There are a couple of Sancho songs floating about, which maybe we'll talk about at, at a later date, but none of them have picked up properly yet, even though he's in good form. So that was nice. And also, Lusandro Martinez loving the fact that he's getting the Argentina chant, which, as I've said before a couple of times on air, is so satisfying to do, as as we've done in the past for Ain't Say Tevez and, uh, and a couple of others, even though Ain't Say and Tevez uh, no longer have a great reputation at United. <laughs> I don't I hope Lissandro Martinez will not uh, not succumb to the same fate. But he, he just he looks properly buzzing with it and he, he spoke about it after to think to MUTV saying he like it makes him really proud and he, he like he's completely baffled and surprised by it, but but he loves it. Which is exactly the kind of reaction you want.
1: <laughs> Nothing makes sense in English football when you if you try and rationalise it, that's the thing. You just can't yeah. kinda of go with it and enjoy it.
0: It must be baffling for them. Argentinians who like so when I I I was in Buenos Aires for about six weeks, a few uh three years ago, which some listeners write and remember and the kids there, I was doing some coaching there and the kids in, in these various like neighborhoods on the edge of Buenos Aires would, they would be six or seven or eight years old and they call me Invasor, which means invader <laughs> because of the history of, of England and Argentina with the, the Falklands war, or Las Malvinas as they call them. And so there is a, and, and like I, I was staying in a hostel with uh, it was half, uh, half was kind of hostel and, and people working with this charity were staying there and the other half was a uni student to, a lot of most of them Argentinian union students study in buenos aires and and after a few weeks we were a bit more comfortable with each other. They were like asking about what we think about about the Falklands or las malvinas and they were they were particularly baffled. they were mainly baffled by how how little we care about it and obviously for an older generation of english people it it is a bigger thing but as someone born in in 2000, age 22, I was just like Like I mean, we know about it and we know about the history a little bit, but it's just no no one cares. I'd apologise, be like, I'm sorry, like I'm aware this is a a big deal for for you, but for English people in our generation, doesn't matter. But it's so different for them. So you take someone like Sandra Martinez, who's been brought up in that environment. And, and any Argentinian, and to have then, in this case, five hundred, five hundred fifty, six hundred, but in other cases, fifteen thousand people chanting your in England, chanting Argentina, Argentina at you. You must just think, what, what is going on? But it's it's brilliant. I love well, it. Well,
1: and even just from a footballing perspective, like England and Argentina have, a, and largely yeah. because of the legacy of the Falkland Wars, even just in in football terms, England and Argentina have a pretty famous rivalry that is then been further stoked by you know incidents on the pitch, most famously yeah. Beckham getting sent off in the World Cup in '98. It's God. not it's not as if it's all friendly when you come to to football terms as well. So it it must be so baffling to hear yeah. that. And it was it was sort of nice to hear that interview where he just admitted like I don't really know what's going on, but I love his it.
0: English is great as well. I didn't realise how good it was. Um, and and that's I mean that's just a positive, a small positive. I on the subject of Argentina, um, my. There's the hostel I was staying in in Chisinau, the owner of it. So I was surprised to find out that there's loads of Italians in Moldova or in at least in Chisinau. Romanian is a like, So Moldovans speak Romanian basically with a few differences and Romanian is it sounds it, it, to the other. It's like very close it, it, to Italian,
1: right?
0: Yeah. It's, it's a mixture of Russian and it's obviously not a mixture of Russian and Italian, but in terms of how it sounds and, and a bit how it looks as well in, in writing, it's, it's, kind of half Italian half Russian and it didn't really it's like quite a lyrical language and not only that but Italian Russian is the second most spoken language Italian's the third and there's a, loads of Italians there my host owner was Italian from Naples massive Napoli fan and he decorated his wall with there were kind of loads of famous people and then right at the top was Diego Maradona and when I when I first met him after, after coming in late at night he was there the next morning and he was uh, he was asking about like United and football and he was like make sure you Pay tribute to God up there and pointed at, at Diego. <laughs> <I would> say, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was nice. But how totally- was,
1: how was like, your experience in in Moldova and and in the in the stadium in in particular?
0: Moldova was great. It's uh, I was warned before that it it's a bad place and like the most boring capital in Europe, and it's that it's completely an unfair reputation. I mean, in fact, almost everything written about it online is is wrong. So even just warnings of. Uh, of it being mainly cash society and there would be no, it's like quite hard to exchange currency there in, in pounds and euros and being hard to get money out of ATMs is just completely untrue. And this was written kind of, this was like on a, a foreign office guide on just guides that the tourist websites and books had written. It's just complete, all completely false. It's so everything it's, it's just a European capital with some, some bad bits and some rundown bits and some kind of reminders of its Soviet past, but also with like great food, international food friendly people communication is quite hard because english is at best the fourth most spoken language and that's not a surprise it's it because of its proximity to russia and 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 its history with russia more people speak russia and there's the italian thing so it's not surprising it's quite hard to communicate there and that's not their fault it's it's ours um although i was with a few reds who speak a bit of russian which which helped but yeah it's a it's a good capital city there's loads to see and not just in the capital but like easy easy day trips i didn't have enough time to go to Trans- transnistria in Tiraspol, which was a shame and I, I really want to go back and do that uh but i went to a i did a winery tour in krikova and there's the world's biggest wine cellar there with 120 kilometers of roads which is ridiculous um Jeez. yeah uh, it's where putin has his well he used to have his personal collection until a couple of years ago In fact, Putin had his 50th birthday party in 2002, I think, in a a Moldovan wine cellar, in the one that I went to. And then about a year after that- I was going to say that's a
1: great pub quiz fact, but I don't even think it would come up in a pub quiz. That's just a great (laughs) (laughs) random fact.
0: That would be a niche pub quiz. Maybe in in Moscow or St. Petersburg, but not. uh, it's unlikely (laughs) to be a question in a a Manchester or or Chicago pub quiz for you. Um, But yeah, about a year after that, he- he made this like just small comment about how Moldovan's wine had got. So Moldova's a massive, I think seventh largest wine produced in the world. And it produced one out of every two bottles sold in the Soviet Union for most of its wow. history. So, and, and then Putin made it. And it's a tiny country, but it's like got a warm climate. It rains a little bit, but not too much. And. Uh, it's just got a great environment for for growing uh, grapes. But Putin, made, after his 50th birthday, like a couple of years after, made this small comment about Moldova's wine not being as good anymore, and Moldova just stopped exporting wine to Russia. <laughs> like not com- not completely, but because they were like, well, yeah, we you can't have it then. And it, I don't know how how significant this is, but then they started exporting to the EU instead. So now most, so the English royal family buy. Seventeen thousand bottles of um, Moldovan wine every year from just one of their their wineries, oh. which is obviously a lot. <laughs> um, and but I don't know how significant this is, but Moldova is getting closer and closer to like the the rest of Europe rather than the old Soviet state. Uh, Romania is, uh, which is just next door and where I flew back from, is like all on its way to joining the EU. I can't remember what the exact uh a title is this there's there's a there's a stage between not being at all in the EU and being about to get into it uh and then get, being in it that being about to get into it is Romania. And hopefully Moldova can can do that soon as well because they're very proud of their independence and, and the fact that they can now speak their own language again which they weren't allowed to do during Soviet times. And it, it's a really good place and really cheap and I think people will start going on holiday more there. And I I'm like I'm really glad that it, it, I, I went and it surpassed expectations massively because everyone had told me how shit it was before I went. As, as for the game itself and the stadium, easy to get to and then some really like good places, like good bars around it and, and good transport links. But yeah, the ground was tiny, felt very non-league. So the capacity... And, ten... that,
1: and that that's, that ground is still a, a lot bigger than the actual ground in Tirash ball right? Uh, wasn't that why it was played in Kiev? No, now so in it first was played
0: place? because UEFA banned games from being held in Transnistria because they got lots of links oh, to right. Russia. So Transnistria is a like an independent communist state. They had a civil war in the early nineties, ninety-one or ninety-two, and they kind of earned that status as self-proclaimed independent. They're not recognised by anyone. They're not even recognised by Russia because Russia wouldn't be allowed to. But they speak Russian and they ally, uh, align themselves with with. Moscow and and Putin there's Russia I think 1500 Russian troops in in Transnistria it's because Transnistria is also on the border with Ukraine on the southern border near Odessa so it was as soon as the the invasion happened Sheriff was told you need to play your games elsewhere uh, and, and will do for the foreseeable future so that's why it's played. I don't know, I don't know how big the Sheriff Stadium is. I think it I I don't think it's much smaller, and I'd I would guess it's a bit bigger. Uh but the Zimbru, which was built for there's the there's a Zimbru team who's uh <laughs> who we got offered to have uh, we're we were having a drink after the game with and these two very polite, like 19, 20 year olds uh Moldovans came up to us and they were like, How are you? Did you enjoy the game? And then after about a minute said we're from the. Uh, we support the Zimbru team. We are their ultras. Do you want to fight us? And we were like, uh like, uh, no, we're just having a beer, actually. And they were like, okay, that's fine. Enjoy your, enjoy your drinks. Have a great evening. It was like <laughs> it's the, the, the most, most polite ultras I've ever seen. Well, I mean, this is. That's kind of there's 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 different ki- kinds of like ultras and hooligans and there are these certain ultra groups. That it, it's an arranged thing. It's like a it's not just going to beat people up. They just wanted like they want to have a fight and there will be. And it's
1: almost a- like a it's almost more like a competition, isn't it? At that point? yeah, it's like you want to sort of prove that you're better than the others. Not like I hate you, so I'm gonna punch you. In the it's face
0: exactly me. that, yeah. And and English football had that in parts in the eighties and had the other side of just like hooligans and uh, and bashing people's heads in. Uh, in other parts but yeah it, it was it was funny um, anyway this stadium was built for Zimbru and for the Moldovan national team but 10,000 10,500 and were, it was tiny and, and it was so they, there was only one entrance for everyone going to the game uh, we got there really late so there were no like just before kick-off so there were no queues but apparently there were big queues before and then you had like you had to show your passport and your ticket so it, it was quite it was hard to get a ticket if you hadn't actually bought you couldn't just buy one on the day for like a, a markup rate from from a local but then it was completely basic it wasn't desegregated there was a massive away end or not a massive there was an away end like particular away end but you just all entered in the same part of the stadium and then you could just walk around wherever you liked so we we came in the opposite side to the away end where the entrance was and then had to walk pitch side past all three stands of fc sheriff fans and into the away end where we just had to show our ticket very quickly in fact we didn't even have to show it there we showed it uh, near the home end again. And they were like, Oh, yeah, away ends over there. It was just baffling. So there were loads of United fans in the, in the home end. The, there was no like sheriff fan culture there whatsoever. I don't know if people traveled from Tiraspol for the game. They normally do, apparently. Um, and people, lots of, there are lots of like Chisinau based sheriff fans. I met a couple who go up to Tiraspol for games because sheriff are by far the biggest Moldovan team and by far the most successful. And especially after they beat Real Madrid, there's more support for them now. But there was still, yeah, loads of United fans, locals, not, not people who'd come from, from England and bought tickets because it was really hard to do that in the home end. Um, but yeah, it's just a weird atmosphere. So there was no like sheriff chanting. It was just the occasionally chance of sheriff, sheriff. And then quite a small United end five. We were only given 550, 560 something tickets, I think. And it was, yeah, there was good noise at times.
1: I mean, you could hear, you could hear on TV even that like pretty much the only noise coming from the ground was from the United fans yeah, the entire yeah. time. I haven't
0: actually watched highlights back at all because I, I wanted to hear that, actually. Uh, it wasn't like the loudest of of ends but it was quite and good.
1: Then, and then, like I was saying to you before, well, and then like I was saying to you before we started, the only other thing I noticed was just that even when United scored, it was like half the the home end behind the goal was going up celebrating because it seemed like there were yeah. a lot of local United fans in the in the stadium too.
0: Yeah, well, because when we walked in, I walked in with a, a Ukrainian United fan called Ivan and we were just walking past and we were looking into the home and there were so many United shirts. Which I, didn't, yeah. I mean, it, not entirely surprising, but I expected the atmosphere and that would have been really different were the game played in Tiraspol yeah. and not in now. And the atmosphere would undoubtedly have been a lot better in Tiraspol. So in, in some senses, that's a shame in other senses for local United fans in Moldova, this was great. And the, a chance you would never get otherwise. So it was good for them. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun. But on the, and, but yeah, when Ronaldo scored, especially the amount of fans yeah, out there. Yeah. And, and then Ronaldo went and scored it at the, at the end with the United fans in, instead of running over to a corner with United fans, run over to the corner with Sheriff fans. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm sure they loved that.
1: It had at times, especially after Ronaldo's goal, it almost had a bit of like a pre-season game feel, in that there were just kind of smatterings of local United fans yeah. like everywhere in the in the stadium. It's almost like what you get when United go on Yeah.
0: Team. Yeah, it was similar to that. It was yeah, it was almost a tour game. But then in, in terms of how United played just
1: obviously with like a proper United away section.
0: Yeah, just just to wrap up before we go on to some patron questions, that's also a testament to the fact United didn't bottle this. And I mean, Sheriff have changed a lot of players since they beat Real Madrid, but they've recruited some good players and some talent from all over the world. They're not a a bad team, but they're not a great team, but like they, they could have caused an upset they have in the past um, and they put in some really good performances against against not just Real Madrid, but also against Inter and Shakhtar. And they beat Shakhtar. I think they drew with Inter last year. Um, and United just didn't bottle it. We went out and it was a bit of a shaky 10 minute start, but then we like we did the job and then we did the job well enough that the second half just became nothing. Um, so, so that's a credit to, to the team.
1: Yeah. I mean, you only have to go, go back to this time last year. I know they're a better team than, than Sheriff on paper, but... Because like yeah. we, we lost the young boys away from home, like it, yeah. it can happen yeah. very easily.
0: Right, we um, we should move on. Let's go to some patron questions, starting with Corey Lennox, which is a nice a nice soft question to start with. He says. Uh, would you mind talking about when and why you fell in love with United? I grew up. This is Corey speaking, not me. I grew up in Virginia, just outside Washington DC. I'm 31, so when I was growing up, I remember seeing Ken Eric and his popped collar when I was five or six year old. That was it for me. I thought it was the coolest thing, and I never looked back. Jack, why don't you start on this one? Yeah,
1: well, f- for me, like, so I, I grew up in London, but my dad grew up. It was is from Blakely, born and bred in Manchester. All his, all my family on his side are from there. So. Just wasn't really sort of given a choice, I guess. But that was me. I was the United fan from the, the moment I could speak and kick a ball, basically. And in terms of sort of what actually, I guess, made me kind of fall in love with the United, like first player that I really fell in love with, it was probably, it was the early 2000s. I remember having the 2001-02 season review on DVD <laughs> and so often after I'd go to like nursery or school I just sit in my in our back room and like watch that on repeat I can still remember the games we played Deportivo in the in the Champions League that year yeah. and I think we got beaten by them at home but my the first player that I really sort of fell in love with was, was Van Nistelrooy. he was my favourite player back then and I'd still to this day think he's probably one of the most underrated players to ever play in the Premier League just how how bloody good he was but that was sort of me and, and then you know, growing up in the era of Rooney and Ronaldo and sort of the time when I was old enough to to fully sort of be invested and follow football was right around the time when Rooney and Ronaldo came. I still remember really vividly losing that FA Cup final penalty shootout in 05 to Arsenal. Mm. And it was sort of from there, it just sort of grew and grew. And, and obviously, you know, both very fortunate to have grown up in a period where United had such a great team and had so many players to become, you know, you idolise basically. The, the other The other thing for me personally was so that the place where I grew up I mentioned my dad's from Manchester but I grew up in London the town where I grew up is where David Beckham grew up I went to the same school as him the same place where Harry Kane grew up as well and so David Beckham's always been my absolute hero and obviously seeing the latter stages of his United career as I was growing up as well he was like my absolute hero and so that was a big part of it for me as well
0: that's interesting did you have a lot of United fans around you because of Beckham then
1: I, I didn't, I don't think there was that, like, I don't, it never came across that many people who were like, I support United because of Beckham. But I think, to be fair, that might've been different a few years older than me because like, because yeah. I was born in 97. So by the time I was yeah, five okay, or six okay, yeah. fully like could, could take note of football, Beckham had, had either left or was on the verge of leaving. Yeah. But maybe if you went a few years older, then maybe there would have been.
0: Yeah. Because I think there's, there's I've, like I've done, I obviously study United's history quite a lot and um, going back like for the last a hundred years, even in the Edwardian era, there were United fans in London because of Billy Meredith. And then I think there's probably three players that have mainly led people in London to be United fans. Billy Meredith was the first, then best and then probably Beckham. Uh, and now in it since maybe Ronaldo, maybe Rooney, I'm, I'm sure Ronaldo, maybe Rooney, uh, Maybe Cantona, but i think probably Meredith, Best, and, and Beckham are the three three main ones, and then Ronaldo. Um, that's interesting because there's a lot of South London and particularly South London I think United fans, uh, as there is yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of South London Arsenal fans because of like David Rocastle and and then Ian Wright. It does I think I think especially in especially in 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 London boroughs if there's not often been products. Of that borough in elite football, when the first one yeah. comes, it has a massive impact. I think that's probably most, especially with David Rocastle and like Ian Wright, spoken a lot about this in the past, and but it'll be the same with with like Jaden Sancho now, and a lot of uh, Chelsea's big cohort of players from around there will will make a difference, and um, yeah, it's interesting.
1: Well, I think it's probably that like theory of or that sort of effect of a player. Go into a club and then everyone from where they grew up supporting that club is probably two things when it makes it more sort of serious when it happens. One is in the, especially in the case of Ian Wright, like especially when you're sort of blazing the trail and being one of the first black players to come through and become like that big, you know, like that, that makes a huge difference as well. But also just when, when the teams aren't quite as good, like you mentioned like Rooney, Ronaldo, Cantona had a similar effect in London for United, which is true, but that, that's more, I think, just because of how good they are on the pitch and that they became like these huge stars. You know, whereas in the case of, say, even like George Best going all the way back there or, or Ian Wright at Arsenal, it's like at times when maybe the team wasn't quite so good and the connection is a bit more about yeah. where they came from. You know, obviously George Best was part of making United great, but at the time when he first joined, United were, were good, but not, you know, this incredible team that they would go on to become. So I, I think it... It's much stronger that that impact when the team isn't already this like winning machine yeah
0: uh for me i I'm, was born two thousand so I'm about what three three and a half years younger than you, so i don't rem- i mean I don't think I remember the thousand even the two thousand and five final I don't remember for example Ronaldo signing or Rooney signing. I might have false memories of those things, but
1: oh so you, you don't you don't don't remember Rooney's debut no oh that's such a shame that was that's one of the few games that I remember like so vividly from back then yeah
0: i've i have very very I've, so I'm born August 2000 as well. So during the 2006 World Cup, I was five. I vaguely remember that being a thing, but I don't remember right. specifics of it. So the first team that I remember actually watching of Uniteds was 2006 seven, and I just love that team, and I still love it now. I love the the kit from that era. I love
1: the, the throwback kit. Yeah, yeah,
0: I just yeah, everything about that season. Even though we. Kind of should have won the treble and actually only won the Premier League. Um, and and then we we became a better but less thrilling team the next year. And so my first game at, at Old Trafford was seven one against Roma. I was in the Stretford end for that, and that was my first game. And I was uh lifted up by Randomers next to me. About so, I mean, in terms of when I properly fell in love with you, I was I I probably say it was my first game i supported the team i can't right really tell you when i supported the team from because I, I, maybe my dad or my brother could so my my i grew up right next to arsenal in, in, in the house i was born in was i was born there it, it like i was born there it's uh, 2000 but then the Emirates was built there starting from about 2004 or five and then we moved about two streets away so we weren't involved in the uh the mess of an arsenal match day uh and my, but my brother's three and a half years older. So my dad gave him the choice of United and Arsenal. My dad grew up in near Macclesfield, uh, which is just south of Manchester, for those of you who don't know. And his, so my dad's support came from me in terms of wh- whether he was going to be United or City. He delivered the papers for uh, Stan Pearson, who was part of the, so Stan Pearson became a postman. He was part of United's 1948 FA Cup winning team and a great player. And then he became a poster in Macclesfield, and, uh, or in Presbury near Macclesfield. And my dad delivered the did the paper round for him, so he became a United fan because of that, um, which is a, a great story. <laughs> and then, yeah, my my dad gave my brother because he's older the choice because he was like, "Well, we are we are going to grow up next to Arsenal, so I don't want to deprive you of the chance to kind of go watch your local team, who are also happen to be very good." Um, but then, so when I would have been, I guess during the Invincibles era, I could have. I could have chosen Arsenal, but my brother kind of made the choice for me. Um, and like when he was four or five, he liked United and Arsenal both. And it's that, that age where you can kind of get away with that. And then I think he yeah. always says that the the way it turned was Arsenal beat United and this would have been, he would have been five. So this would have been 2000, uh, 2002, maybe 2001 or two. And then in the playground at school the next day, he got uh, he got teased because Arsenal had beaten United. And he was like, well, if I'm going to get, if I'm going to be teeth for it anyway, I might as well just be a United fan rather than yeah. <laughs> swear between the two. So I'm very glad he did that because oh, it means... I wonder I've, if
1: that was the... Uh, that might have been the game where Henri loved barthez
0: Could have been, yeah. Yeah. But so I never... I, I saw from the edge of the pitch or like a corner the last game at Highbury, but my brother went to Highbury a couple of times and saw Thierry Henry score a hat-trick once, I think, and saw United Arsenal there, but somehow oh. didn't get drawn in by becoming an Arsenal fan because it would be very easy to in that era especially with Henry. Like I mean I think we all love Henri even though he was our, our kind of a, a rival a specific direct rival to us for for many years it's pretty impossible not to love Henry he was just yeah. such an incredible player but yeah somehow he chose United and that's ended up with me being in freaking now. in uh, <laughs> many years later <laughs> uh, but in terms of when I properly fell in love Probably, I'd, I would. I, I can't pinpoint that exactly, but I'd say properly fell in love. It's normally, it's often your first game, and given it, it was seven-one against Roma. It'd yeah. be hard not to say that. Yeah. Uh, should we talk? I think my first, answer, my first uh, game. Go on.
1: To go back there, I think Diego Forlan scored in my first game. Pretty sure it was. Wow. I can't remember. I think it was two thousand and two. I was. It was for my birthday. I think we played the day before my birthday against Southampton at home and Forland scored in like the 85th minute or something to win the game.
0: Nice, nice. Um, Which is
1: always a bit, a, a nice little thing to be able to say, Diego Forland score for United. Yeah.
0: So mine was, a, yeah, April 2007, the Champions League Um I don't know how we would have even got tickets for it. Uh, my dad and brother had been a few times, my dad was like when, when he was a kid, but my brother had been a few times before that and I, I'd never been able to go. I was considered too young, but then yeah, I was six then. No idea how we got tickets for it, but I'm very glad we did. And yeah, my, f- my favorite, first favorite player was, was Rooney. I loved Anderson, but Rooney, yeah, it'd be impossible not to be Rooney at that time. Let's talk quickly about the United women opening the season. They won. We recorded a few hours after their game. They beat Reading 4-0 to start the season and a uh, new signing center back. Maya Letizia, who's a really exciting signing. We spoke about her with um, Andy Slater from the Barmy article in an episode about 10... days ago, two weeks ago. But yeah, centre-back my Letitia, opening her account with two goals on her debut, incredibly. Captain Katie Zolm celebrated her 100th game with a penalty goal and Alessia Russo, who was England's hero in the summer, scored one in a prolific first half, all four goals in the first half, much quieter second half, but a great win and a clean sheet to start the season. And yeah, Letitia, what a story. Young centre-back, first goal's a lovely finish from a corner, inside of the right boot and then looped over the goalkeeper. And then second, there's a brilliant directed header with a bit of questionable goalkeeping uh, and Russo's with a, a great cross after a move down the right with Batier and Lucia Garcia and then a good header, that was a as, great well. header 7, by as well. 7,000. Yeah, yeah, really good. 7,000 in attendance, great way to start season. season. Uh, Reading not, uh, often start seasons pretty slowly, so it's not a, a incredible, it's a g- very good result, it's not like an incredible surprising result, it, it's just a good way to start. There's a really interesting column, um, I mentioned there were 7,000 in attendance, that's, uh, one of the biggest United crowds at Lee Sports Village ever. And, and a really good one. Not A lot of the time kind of getting in the mid in 2000s, 3000s, which is good for the WSL, but it could be better for United. There's a really interesting column from Jonathan Lew in the Guardian about building on the summer success with the Euros, where how how do you, women's football needs to take the next step, but how do you take the next step? Because there's there's several options and, the elite clubs say, oh, let's make it as business-like as the Premier League. Some people even say, let the WSL be uh, subsumed by the Premier League and run in the same way. And you get the money into it and that'll trickle down and that'll be good for everyone. Other people and and are very keen to point out that women's, f- women's football is an amazing product. It's got, such a different feel to men's football. And it's, we've spoken about this before. Sometimes it's so refreshing and the players are refreshing and, and, and the fan culture is, is new and that history of fan culture isn't there everywhere. It is at certain clubs like Arsenal, Bit, at Luz, FC. It's not really there at United yet. It's only been a few years, but it, it is, it's amazing sport that's overcome so many, uh, hurdles. And do we want it to, follow men's football exactly and become a business like that because that would that remove so many of the refreshing bits about it so it was a really he, Jonathan Lewis was basically saying which is the route that we take and I think I I fall down on you want to maintain this as much as possible and if that means growth being a little bit slower but you maintain this kind of almost ideological purity about it I'd be fine with that it's a great alternative to the world of men's football which we have so many complaints about
1: yeah, I completely agree with you there. Like I think what's what's so nice about watching women's football is that it feels different. And I, and I don't mean that in in a bad way at all. I mean that in a really good way because you watch it and it's not it's not this sort of I don't know the some sometimes, you know, watching men's football, you know, obviously the passion and the history behind it and sort of the tribalism behind it is partly what makes it special, but it can get it can get too much sometimes. Like whether you're at, at a stadium in in the ground, whether you're watching on TV, whatever. Like it is just a, a a really nice, different experience watching women's football. Where to be honest with you, the focus actually just seems to be so much more on technically, are these good footballers or not? And I and I love that actually because personally, that that's that's what I find most exciting about football. And I I think if you try to just make Women's foot with the exact same as men's. You'd be losing so much of what yeah. makes it a uniquely really good spectacle.
0: Yeah. And it, 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 how do you then do that? How how do you get the growth at the same time? Is I mean, it's more more question for um, uh, Baroness Campbell, who's head of women's football, the FA. But so the FA are basically planning to give away. The FA currently are in charge of the WSL and the Championship. They, they intend to basically give away. Their control of that within the next few years, uh, so the WSL will be allowed to run itself in the same way that Premier League clubs run the Premier League. They are under very, very slight supervision of the FA. But even that, you think, why? Sh- <laughs> why should it be that clubs run? their own league because then you then you're faced with situations where you get things like project big picture in the Premier League if the majority of clubs in WSL are Premier League clubs as well is that dangerous for clubs like Lewis or or, or smaller teams who are then going to be basically shafted out of the elite women's game in favour of Premier League clubs who came in late on like United and Liverpool and Newcastle who are in the fourth tier at the moment but about to pump loads of money into it and will be a WSL side before long probably it's, it's it's a difficult ideological question.
1: It is, and I, and I think the other challenge as well is how how like because I think that there are relatively easy ways to promote it, especially stuff like attendance. You know, you just give tickets away for free. You put adverts everywhere. You know, you make it try like try and make it a really enticing sort of offer to go to to a WSL game. But yeah. you also you also don't want to go too far in that direction and make it feel almost a bit like a gimmick or like something that's just sort of. I don't know there's being coddled. I guess like you wanna you wanna be able to promote it in a way that means it's going to grow yeah. organically and that it's going to stand on its own two feet at some point. You know, like I know that there was a lot of sort of comments about this over the summer that one of the one of the ways you could tell that women's football was growing so much during the Euros was that actually there was a lot more criticism in in the coverage of like players and stuff, whereas before that. When there had been times when, at least in England, when it, the England women's team had been on TV in big games, it was sort of like you can't say anything bad because we got to do everything we can to like you know make everyone think this is good and worth yeah. watching, you know. And it is little like there are there are things like that where you like anyone who watches cricket. I, I know we have quite a lot of people in the US listen to it, so this might not might not wash. But people who watch cricket, anyone who's sort of seen the hundred, it's kind of like that. How like you watch it on Sky Sports. And like, they never say anything bad about it because the ECB, it's like, it has to work. It has to work. Like we can't say, we can't acknowledge anything negative about it at all. Yeah. It needs to not be like that, basically. And I think it is a hard balance to promote it in a way that's going to allow it to grow organically and not just feel like this sort of coddled, I guess, sort of just business idea that they want to have and just won't let it fail.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I recommend reading Jonathan Liu's column in The Guardian. It's interesting. Yeah, he's great. Right. Let's go to uh, one of our bigger questions from Dio Turner, who says Marcus Rashford is playing well, but I miss the days when he'd frequently dribble past defenders. Now he seems less likely to try to dribble past defenders or he gets dispossessed if he tries. What do you two think happens to his slalom runs through defences? It's a really interesting opportunity to talk properly about Marcus Rashford because we have at times before spoken about him after, good performances and bad performances. But let's let's look at the big picture. He's now in his eighth season of senior football. He's had six full campaigns in that time and he's been a regular pretty much the whole time. And attacking players like him, so wingers, forwards rather than like out-and-out strikers who can last a bit longer probably, forwards like him who are explosive, have at most 12 seasons at the very top, more like eight to 10. So he's, I mean, he's more than halfway through. And he hasn't made the step to being a superstar, which he thought he might. And lots of people in world football did and, and spoke about Rashford being able to, I mean, even like people like Neymar spoke about it. Uh, but if we forget the expectation that he would become that, if we kind of do the, I think people would do this sometimes with Wayne Rooney, really, if let's try forget the expectation that was there and actually just talk about what, what's happened. Has he changed much as a player over the last few years and since he broke through? And I, I was looking at this before, researching a bit Dio's question and statistically no he's had good form and bad form he had a particular spell of bad form last season physically yes he's changed he's bigger is he quicker probably not does he look different on the pitch yeah he carries himself differently he looks less happy but the problem is there's a difficult figure because because, I mean, we, what was the, for you, what was the reason that Rashford broke into the team when he did? Because obviously he scored a couple of goals, but then he didn't. There have been people who scored a couple of goals before, like Federico Makeda and and, and uh, Adnan Yanezai. Not all of them then maintain their place for the next six years. Why was it that originally for the first couple of years, Rashford broke through into the United team?
1: I've always said that I I think Rashford's biggest strength ever since he first broke into the United team was his movement. I think he's always had a a brilliant ability to understand where space is, where space is going to open up and to be able to make really good runs into it. I think that's always been his biggest strength and it's something that you often don't get with young players because it's something that, well, A, it requires a really good footballing brain and it often also takes experience to be able to understand and anticipate where defenders are going to move and where the space is going to open up. You often see young players come in on the ball, they're really good technically, but they need more time to sort of develop that part of their game. Rashford had that from the second that he came in and actually what he needed more sort of development on was that sort of more raw part of his game, which was in when the times when he needed his technique to kind of carry him through, especially with his finishing. So for me, that was yeah. always the, the biggest thing. And it was it was that ability to get into so many good spaces that I think allowed him... To, to be so good at getting past so many defenders that he came up against because it was very rare that he'd receive the ball and he'd have two defenders immediately within a yard of it because he Yeah so but really then he also space for himself.
0: He had an amazing ability to get past those defenders. Like yeah, I mean yeah. I remember going back like when he skinned Martin D. Michaelis for his Manchester yeah. Derby goal very early on. Um, but yeah the movement was really good and we saw that up front and we saw it on the wing as well and he seemed to have a lot to his skill set. And that was the the key he scored. So the the key was that ability, the good, decent movement and and the ability to get past defenders at the top of their game. But he also scored a couple of good headers, including on his Premier League debut against Arsenal. He had some great longer shots and then he was also scoring tap-ins. And he was doing that by having that good movement, by getting into good central positions in the box. But what seems to happen is, is he's narrowed that set of abilities. He's gone the opposite way instead of adding to that and, and making more of them great. His, his movement was good. His ability to get past players was brilliant and that kept him in the team. Instead of adding to that and making the rest go up, he's, he's, he hasn't. And so he's kept similar numbers in terms of goals and assists, but also like expected goals and the number of chances he creates per game. Sometimes they've even got better, but there's a lot less variation to the game. He scored far too few headers. His finishing in one-on-ones so has probably got better. Uh and under Ole, Ole clearly worked on that with him and he, and Ole spoke about that a lot. And it paid off in several situations. And in bad confidence recently, especially last season, that finishing fell off, but it's come back better this season. But Solskjaer also spoke about strikers breaking their nose to score goals, and he mainly spoke about that with, with Mason Greenwood, but it was also true for Rashford and Martial. And and how long have we how long has it been since we saw Rashford do something like that? Too many of his shots are long range hopeful knuckle balls. He's not getting into the six yard box enough. And that's why, so he scored so few headers, he scored fewer shots from close range. And I I think there's a whole variety of reasons to that. But ultimately my point is, is he running at players less and is he having less success? Or is it that defenders have worked out his game more and so he can't get past him as much? Or is it about perception? Is he doing less other things so that he looks less successful doing his main thing, which is taking players on? Because I don't actually think he's doing it less and he's having less success with it. He's still doing it properly the same amount.
1: Well, I think in terms of perception, what really impacts that as well is what happens, like what comes from those dribbles. Like that that is also a huge part of it. You don't remember a player going past three or four players if their cross gets blocked.
0: Which was you know, maybe the- Sancho's problem last season.
1: Yeah, exactly. exactly.
0: Or, or, if, or, if the, or if the striker or the player you're playing it to doesn't score it.
1: Right. And and I think that is probably a little, to, to some degree at least what has happened with Rashford. But I also think in terms of perception, it's also that when he was a young player and he came onto the scene as like an 18-year-old, if if he played 40 minutes, let's say if he came on as a sub, And he went, and all he did was he had a couple of good dribbles, went past two or three guys, and then his cross didn't beat the first man. That was sort of acceptable at that point. That was enough for you to watch that game and be like, wow, this is a great talent. I can't wait to see Uh, where he's going to go in his career.
0: I'm sorry to butt in, but I'm going to mention Greenwood again. I remember the game against Middlesbrough in the league, oh no, against West Ham, sorry, in the League Cup last season, where everyone in the team was poor and Greenwood came on and had one of those games where he didn't actually change the game. We still lost it 1-0 and he didn't score, but he had, like, he looked good and that was enough for him. And that's, that's kind of what you're you're talking about.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I, I like, I don't, I don't have the stats to to actually say whether this is, is what's happened, but it is entirely possible that, Rashford's game has actually stayed almost exactly the same, but...
0: Well, yeah, so he's... he's, he's, Yeah, the number of chances he's creating per game in terms of the shot creating actions, which is one of those stat phrases, is similar, sometimes even better. His expected goals is pretty similar. His expected assists is pretty similar. In fact, sometimes his expected goals per shot is better than it was.
1: Well, I I mean...
0: So he's... In in most regards, statistically, he's better at these things. So it must be that. And I think,
1: and to be fair, I don't think that's, I don't think that's unfair. Like it is only right that as a player matures and spends more time in the team, it's only right that expectations of them go up. You know, we shouldn't be expecting the same thing from Rashford now that we expected of him when he first broke into the team. Like that is completely fair enough. I think the biggest thing I, I think that I've noticed is just that I feel like, especially when Rashford plays out wide, and I don't know if this is more a function of United as a team and therefore sort of what it forces him to do, or if it's more just him changing as a player. The one thing I have sort of noticed is that he he seems to want the ball to feet a lot more now than he used to when he first broke into the team. And that might almost be part of him trying to become this bigger and better player and a bigger part of what Man United are trying to do. Not just this guy that all he can do is run in behind and that's sort of his one trick. But I, I have noticed him wanting the ball to feet a lot more. And as a result, being in position to take players on less frequently, or maybe not less frequently, but a smaller proportion of the amount of times he gets the ball in total, if that makes sense.
0: Okay, but so I agree, you should expect more from him, and he should have got better that he 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 should have improved himself more than he has. Yeah, is uh is, is the harsh truth of it, and he should have learnt more from the great strikers that he's played with. But in terms of that, wanting the ball to feet, and I've made the same criticism of him before. But actually, if you think about that. When have Rashford's good seasons been? They've not been with Cavani or with Ronaldo or with Zlatan Ibrahimovic even. They've been at first with Rooney, sometimes with him as well. And then with Anthony Martial and with Romelu Lukaku. Three players, Rooney Martial and Lukaku, are brilliant hold-up play as strikers. Ronaldo, no, Cavani sometimes did it but that wasn't the point of his game the point of his game was to finish chances in the box which is what he did He some when needed he sometimes did good hold up play but it wasn't often Zlatan similar sometimes great hold up play and, and great contributions to the, to the move but basically he was on the end of the crosses and that was the point and Rashford isn't the he needs that's why he's good with Martial and so yes he's getting the ball to feet more but is that him asking for the ball to feet more or is it that he doesn't fit as well in a team with Ronaldo for the last sixteen months. Or well before yeah, that, that,
1: that's that's what I meant when I said I don't know if it's a more a function of United as a whole sort of forcing Rashford to change his game to suit what we're doing, or whether it's him yeah. actively and consciously trying to change his game. You know, I I without I guess without sort of more purposefully looking and sort of studying how Rashford has played, I I couldn't I couldn't tell you which of those it is, but I think it is entirely possible that it's probably a little bit of a combination of both. And I don't think it's any surprise that he plays well, primarily when he plays with strikers that are very good at holding the ball up. Because,
0: But a- like, like, look so- at the start of the season. We, we, I mean, pre-season first of all, with Martial, but then also when Ronaldo's not been in the team, yeah. forgetting the first two games, Rashford's had some really good, really good moments. In fact, really good games, not just moments.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think based on what Rashford does with his game, I don't think it's that surprising to me that he plays better with players that, with strikers that are very good at holding the ball up, because it gives him more opportunity to receive the ball in a decent amount of space. If the ball is sticking, especially if we're say clearing our lines from the back, and it, and then it, the ball is actually you know being brought down by our striker, and maybe laid off to him in a bit of space. But also, if that play, if the striker is someone that wants the ball to feed, is willing to come short, but not just like Ronaldo comes short a lot of the time, but it's not hold up play. You know, he'll drop twenty yards deep, and every single time, all he'll do is play a one touch pass back to the guy who played it. That that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about proper hold-up play where you sort of got a def- defender pinned, you drag them out, and you actually properly hold the ball up. You maybe turn them or, or play a pass out out wide. Like that, what that does primarily is it creates space in behind yeah. for Rashford and players like Rashford to exploit. Because you've then dragged the defender deeper, so Rashford can then make like the run that I, I associate with Rashford probably more than anything is that run off the shoulder of the fullback from out to in and he ends up sort of at the corner of the penalty yeah, area yeah. from starting out wide. And that, like we were playing with a striker who's really good at holding the ball up. That is exactly the kind of run that that facilitates. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I think ultimately what we're saying is we, it, he actually isn't, it, it looks like he's running at players less and that he's being less successful and maybe he's been a little bit less successful, especially recently. But I think fundamentally his game hasn't changed that, He's put his own game hasn't changed that much. It's, I think it's more a result of the, the strike he's playing within the system. Because then in the games where he's played up front under Ten Hag and where he's played up front by himself under Solskjaer, he still shows that really good movement. And I think we forget that his movement's that good. So I think going, what he, what he needs to do is, is improve on certain things. So get his finishing even better. But he's shown he can improve it and he did under Solskjaer and, and his finishing is better now. And uh, it has been in one-on-ones and he he showed that already this season, but then he also needs to do what the great inside forwards of, of the recent Premier League history have done, like especially Sadio Mane, but also like Raheem Sterling under Guardiola took a while to settle, but then Sterling improved his finishing, cut out bad value shots, the long range ones and got to the back post more to finish off chances. And we've, I think we probably mentioned this with Rashford about two years ago. He needs to do those things. And, and, I'll forgive it a little bit because United have been rubbish for for a year and a bit. So maybe we haven't had a chance to see it yet, but he really needs to show it this season. And yeah, it's the key is not wasting those shots as he does from long range, cutting those out of his game and making sure he's doing what he did in in his first few years and doing what Sadio Mane's done so or did so well at Liverpool. Take up his game and take up his goal scoring by being in between the posts in the six yard box a lot more. And and then, then he will yeah. improve because he's got the movement. He's got the technical ability. His finishing is decent. He's not amazing, but he's decent. The problem is, how does he do that in this United team? Because he's not a creative enough player to stand out with Ronaldo or to to fit well with him. But Ten Hag's shown that Ronaldo is not the key player for United anymore. He's good with Martial. We'll see when he comes back. On the right, it's possible. I think, I also think there's a difference between Rashford on the right and left and he can look better on the left on the ball but I think he sometimes contra- his, he shows better movement on the right and he's more likely to get to the back post on the right than he is on the left, where he kind of hangs out a bit and doesn't do that Sterling run to the back post.
1: Yeah, I, I think that point of getting to the back post is probably the key difference that I see from like a Rashford compared to a Sterling. Obviously, I think Sterling is, let's say, 10, 20% better than Rashford in most things. But the one thing I think Sterling does that Rashford doesn't at all is that run into the back post and being there, like how many times, like I know Sterling gets a, a bad rap for not having the best uh, finishing technique, which is fair, but how many times do you see him at the back post coming on to the end of a cutback? You know? Yeah. And you, you've got to think that under Ten Hag, that is a situation that United will create slightly more than we ever used to. And that's, I think, something that we've got to, that Rashford needs to be aware of and improving that aspect of his game so that he can capitalise on those on those things. The other thing, I, my last point on this would just be, if there was, again, I don't have any stats to back this up. This is purely just a perception thing. I think to go back to to what Dio's initial question was, in what has changed in Rashford's dribbling, the one thing purely based on perception that I feel like I've noticed more about Rashford in the last couple of years is that I think he, he, he runs down some blind alleys with the ball more than I remember him doing when he was younger. And I don't know... I don't know what the reason for that is. I don't even know if it's actually backed up by stats, but purely based on my perception, I feel like more often than he used to now, he'll pick up the ball and decide, right, I'm running with this ball. And even if he's, even if he's got two men on him and they're pushing him to the corner flag, I feel like I remember a lot of occasions where Rashford has picked up the ball and basically just had to run straight down the wing and ends up getting tackled after travelling 15, 20 yards. And he was never going to get anywhere from that run. Whether yeah. that's actually backed up, I don't know. But that's well, but the decision, one thing that I we know, know his
0: decision-making hasn't always been perfect. Yeah. Which is interesting because you speak about football intelligence with movement, yeah. but...
1: Yeah, it, it, is, it is odd that he, he's so intelligent as a player in one, in one aspect and not so much when it comes to decision-making at like the final stage. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's interesting. Um, let's go to a youth... it yeah, was a really interesting question, Dio, thank you. Um, let's go to a youth and loan roundup, and then we'll... Answer a couple more before wrapping up on this, uh, what's accidentally turned into a bumper episode. <laughs> Okay, time for a youth and loan update starting with the under-21s who played on Friday night at Altrium and had a one-one draw with West Ham. Mark Dempsey's side were in control for much of the game and as usual kept possession very well at times. There's some great ball players in that team but the defence got caught out for West Ham's goal. United equalised soon after through Amari Forson, who is in very good goal-scoring form at the moment but the team couldn't create enough chances and suffered a, well I say suffered but uh, in- endured a fourth consecutive league draw. They drew the first three games 2-2 so they've least ended their run of Desmond's the big highlight of the season so far was the Papa John's trophy against Carlisle United a a win there uh, which you might remember we reviewed in detail with the Mirror Football's Nathan Ridley the under 18s had a 1-0 defeat on Saturday morning at Stoke Matthew Lusquerno latched onto a long ball and beat Tom Worcester in the second half Manny Norquette later rounded the goalkeeper but couldn't convert there were a few chances throughout for United but a defeat away at Stoke one win from four games so far this season similar to last year a difficult start which should soon start picking up as this young squad gets used to the step up from under 16's football the big low news in brief is Matej Kovar has gone to Sparta Prague the 22 year old goalkeeper signed a new long-term contract at United lasting until I think from memory 2025 and has gone back to his homeland the Czech Republic to play with Sparta Prague he'll be their first choice he's played a couple of times already it's a, a really good move and it, it, that's a that's a proper taste of senior football at a good level um, uh, yeah a, a really good move that and, and exciting for him uh, the most exciting other loaning at the moment is ethan laird who's doing very well at qpr and we'll probably talk about his development um in in a bit more detail perhaps during international break or in a couple of weeks as he as he continues to do well at qpr and we'll see how that progresses over the next couple of weeks Okay, we've got three more questions. Let's rattle through. Ethan, Ethan said, "Well, first we said great work on the show so far. This season, absolutely loving it so far. So thank you, Ethan." And then he said, "I haven't got anything huge to ask, which I suppose is a good sign as the squad seems pretty settled at the minute." But did want to ask about the hair retaining his place on Thursday. Any theories as to why that would be? He asked this before, but he said we'll be slightly confused if he starts again against Sheriff. Considering we've just loaned in a very capable deputy, it's an interesting point that, that this could have been a chance to try out the the deputy in in Dubravka and try out potentially a different way of playing and see if Dubravka's better at that any any idea?
1: The, the only explanation I can give is that with all the Premier League games getting cancelled yeah, Half wanted to, to have one. more time in the team yeah. that's the only explanation can I, that I can give other than that I've got no idea why Dubravka wouldn't have played it
0: is, It's also interesting that I mean I was watching from the away end and after a few pipes, so I'm going to defer to you on this <laughs> did we play out did we play out from the back a lot against Sheriff?
1: A fair amount yeah I mean it wasn't it wasn't like obviously crazy. they weren't pressing us yeah, that much yeah exactly so. we we did when we weren't under pressure yeah. for
0: sure you think we might have artificially manoeuvred some more of those situations once we're 2-0 up yeah. just to try and I don't know maybe that's been a bit arrogant and assuming that we wouldn't then crumble if Sheriff scored but you think we might have kind of deliberately tried to do that more. And so we could test out in a game situation. I mean, the, the only it's other thing on the
1: Dubravka thing is, may, I mean, we'll, we'll see obviously when we start playing in the League Cup and the FA Cup, but maybe Ten Hag just isn't a manager that likes playing his backup goalkeeper in Cups. Like I think it's almost missed a little bit yeah. at times that like that is, that is a really recent innovation that didn't happen 10, 15 yeah. years ago.
0: Yeah, definitely. The other quick one is from Corey again. He says, I'm back again um, with a laughing face. Yeah, that's all right. He says, uh, thoughts, feelings that Greenwood might return to the squad. Not sure how I have to feel about it. Uh, he's not returning to the squad. It's uh, how many stories have there been since the original story came out that Greenwood's back, whether it's from his profile bill on the United website, that story where his where his profile was there the entire time because United can't remove it. And then it became a story in like the mail and stuff. And then this where he was included in the uh, Premier League squad because he's under 21s and he just appears in it because he's still technically a player because United can't suspend him until he's actually prosecuted or something. So he's not returned to the squad. If he did, in terms of how I would feel about it, I would. I think there would be significant process outside Old Trafford. And I think that would be the right thing. And I would be, uh, yeah, I'd be very, very upset with the club and I think if he actually played uh, I I can't even see it even as a hypothetical him playing for United again but I would be uh, yeah very angry about that
1: yeah echo absolutely everything that you said on that would, uh, would not would not sit well with, I mean that doesn't even do it justice <laughs> but cannot can't, can't really fathom him playing for United again
0: yeah okay let's move on to a bigger final question before we finally wrap up from Ted Popham who's been asking this for a couple of weeks and we finally got round to it he says with all the VAR issues, especially the clear and obvious debate, do you think a three appeals per half system like American football or a rugby-specific conversation with the ref and video ref, i.e., is there any reason I can, cannot award the try, do you think either those would work better or a different method? His overall point is what can VAR learn from from the systems of other sport? I don't, There's no simple answer to this. I, to start with, I supported VR from the start coming in, but I always thought the implementation of it was, was all wrong. It should have been more gradual and better planned. It should have started with offsides only first to get rid of the initial confusion over clear and obvious. And then if that was successful with just offsides, which there's no clear and obvious involved in offsides, that's, that's part of the problem anyway. People, I'm not saying Ted does, but there's people still on like commentary who don't understand that. The clear and obvious rule does not apply to offside. It's a completely different point. So anyway, it should have been offsides only first. And then if that was successful, then you can move into clear and obvious areas. And then you can start moving on to other problems as it's successful. But it's inconsistencies in its current format are not just in human error. But they're also in how it's allowed to intervene. For example, it cannot correct for a wrongly given corner or throw-in that leads to a goal, but it can for an offside in the build-up to a goal or a minor foul in the goal. And that's a massive problem anyway. On top of that, the number of errors are down, but the bad ones are just so bad and so poor from the referees themselves. The problem is I don't think the three appeals works because it again leads to inconsistencies and and it's I don't know. It just, it doesn't sit right with me, three appeals. And I'm not sure why. I My gut instinct is no. I think rugby's more appropriate. Any reason I cannot award a try. But I also now think it's probably too late to go to that because there'd be a massive inconsistency with that. So you have to adapt to the current methods. I mean, maybe maybe you can explain a bit about the cricket video review system. Is there anything from there? Because umpire's call would be lovely to have in football but I can't see how that would be introduced into kind of, how how is there a way that that could be introduced in football, umpire's call? Maybe just explain what that is first.
1: Well, yeah. So in, in cricket, the way that the DRS, is called Decision Review System, works. So this is with, with LBW in particular. So LBW, for anyone who doesn't know, is when it hits, it hits a batter's leg and the ball would have gone on to hit the stumps at its simplest. And umpire's call is basically, if only half the ball was going to hit the, out, the edge of the stump, Then basically because there is some error in the technology and because it's sort of a 50-50 decision, whatever, if the umpire says it's out, it will stay as out. If the umpire says it's not out, it will stay as not out. Even if it, like, so basically the same thing happening can be out or not out, depending on what the umpire says. And I mean, I think, and, and, and not just in cricket, but I think in almost every sport where video reviews have been used, there, there is generally deferment to, what the on-field decision is, right? So in the the NFL, for example, similarly to how we've said it in VAR, an error has to be clear and obvious to overturn a decision. So if it's a 50-50 thing where either a camera can't pick up exactly what happened or it's completely borderline, it will stay with whatever the original decision was. And I do think that VAR in the Premier League has has tried to implement that kind of spirit with the whole clear and obvious error thing, right? So I, I do think there has been some attempt to do that. The problem is that well, so firstly, the reason why this works really well in cricket, specifically with LBW, because it doesn't work so well in other ones, which I'll get on to. The reason why it works well in LBW is because it's objective. You can say, if if this much of the ball is hitting this much of the stump, it's a borderline decision and we're going to defer to what the original decision was, right? That's a completely objective. There's, there's nothing in that because the ball is all trapped by Hawkeye, yeah. similar to how it's tracked in tennis. It's easy. Well, it doesn't work so well in cricket and also like in NFL and also where it doesn't work so well in football is decisions that are a lot more subjective. So like in cricket it's when like has a catch hit the ground before it, before the, the wicket keeper catches it and like, and slow mo replay is almost impossible to tell. And so then you end up deferring to what the original decision, decision is, but the umpire's got effectively no idea. They're just guessing. And so then you're using a, 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 an imperfect slow mo replay. To defer to what was already an imperfect original decision. It just doesn't really make any sense. And the same with football. There isn't a sink because we don't have technology at the moment. It does exist, but we're not using it to track, let's say, exactly where the ball is. Say, if the ball went out for like a throw or a goal kick or something, we don't have any decision in football that is completely objective where you can say, if this criteria is met, we're saying it's a borderline decision and we will go with whatever the on field decision is. You can't do that because nothing is that objective. So then you're in this whole world where you're saying, right, we're only going to do it if it's a clear and obvious error, but we don't really know exactly what constitutes a clear and obvious error in terms of how much contact is enough for a player to go down or how far away from your body does your hand have to be for it to be in an unnatural position. Yep. We don't have anything like that. So so quickly to, to address Ted's thing, I don't like the three appeals rule because even when it's used in other sports, like it's used in, the, in NFL and in cricket, for example, and tennis, you can end... And tennis, it, it, it can end up making decisions worse because like it happened in the, in the NFL this weekend, the, the Cincinnati Bengals had a touchdown that probably would have been a touchdown, but it wasn't ruled as such on the field. And their coach did decided not to challenge. So they didn't get that touchdown. I think they may have ended up getting one a few plays later anyway, but you can end up with some even worse decisions that isn't the referee's fault. Which I mean, you, I guess you could say is better because it's not on the referees. But, but then it, I think the point of this should be that we want to get decisions right. We don't yeah, just it, want the referees not to make mistakes. It's
0: still their fault. It's just there is also someone else at fault. I don't want, I don't want to put that onto captains. I don't want that drama to on yeah, exactly. captains and managers. I don't think that's necessary.
1: Well, you could also massively imagine it being used tactically as well. Like imagine go 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 back to like United's Champions League defeats. Yeah, if you had three appeals
0: right? left, you would just do yeah, exactly.
1: Life. Why wouldn't you? At, you holding on to a one nil lead at 85 minutes, your team's tired, you need a bit of a rest to take this thing out of a game. Why wouldn't you just put in yeah. a random VAR review to, to waste some time? You know, so I don't like it from that angle. So first, the, the probably the only time I've ever seen a, a referee in sort of innovation in football and been, been like, wow, was this past week watching or last the two weeks ago seeing the, the Champions League automatic offsides. I thought that was brilliant. For anyone that hasn't seen it, it basically is in real time sort of maps where all the players are. There's a chip in the ball, which tells you at which moment exactly was the ball kicked. And then it can map exactly where the players were. And then you get a sideline view of it in sort of like virtual reality can show you exactly where a are players offside or not. I thought that is absolutely brilliant. And I and I think that and it's, it's going to be used at the World Cup as well, right? These the semi-automatic yeah. offsides. Yeah, really. I think that is brilliant and to be honest, should be used. Because my, my big worry with VAR with offsides has always been You can't make decisions based on a few millimetres, a few centimetres of someone being offside when you're using frames that don't move quickly enough to actually be able to give you that minutia of kind of level of detail. So that's the first thing that I would change personally. The second one, and this is the biggest thing is I think we have to acknowledge that in all of this stuff, we're never going to be perfect. And I don't think that should be the goal. The goal is you need to get as close to perfection as we can, but it's never going to happen in no sport even when they use video refereeing really well, like in rugby, are there ever no controversial decisions? I think what we should be striving for is A, obviously get rid of as many mistakes as we can, but also make sure that everyone who's involved, the players, the fans in the stadium, fans at home, pundits, everyone knows as much about how every decision is made as possible. So I think the biggest change that we can make is get the refs mic'd up when they talk to the video referees, show us what that conversation is. Because to be honest, in, in a lot of these decisions, even if you disagree with them, and I, as someone who's refereed before, a lot of the times when I see a decision I disagree with, I can't completely see how they got to that decision because I've yeah. had to deal with that, those decisions in the past. But 99% of people watching football haven't been referees in the past. And so you don't know what, so what the, the process is like and what you have to decide on. If we were given a window into how they make a decision, A, I think it would make a lot of these controversial decisions a lot more understandable. And B it would help us to actually hold referees properly accountable when they do really, really mess up. Because if they're having a conversation and what they're saying is just completely ludicrous, we will know and you can say, yeah. how on earth did you get to this point?
0: Yeah, that's, that's my big thing. Fans should be able to hear the ref and VR talk and see the footage. And then the difficulty is fans in the stadium. How do you give them a clear explanation? Because especially at Old Trafford, where, for example, there aren't screens that you can show replays yeah. on. Do you do rugby? You hear the ref talk in the stadium and and the TMO. Um, so can you do that football? Well. Yeah, you obviously can, but there's normally more noise at football grounds. Yeah. And do you want to interrupt the atmosphere? And English football's so good because it has these organic atmospheres. Do you want to interrupt the like, organic atmosphere that is there for 90 minutes straight by interrupting with like really loud referee over the loudspeaker? I, I don't know whether you do. I don't think you do. So how do you then give fans in a stadium a clear explanation? But yeah, on TV definitely. And I also think VR should be able to call the referees' attention to anything impactful. Basically, I think it's yeah, me it's too. It's both. It's both not restricted enough and too restricted. If that makes sense,
1: especially especially with yellow with yellow cards as well. Like yeah, I, I I may I may I maybe don't don't think you need it for like every yellow card. But if someone could be sent off for a second yellow. Like why on earth is that not exactly, worthy of a yeah. VAR review, but a straight red is? That makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. Because the whole thing when they brought in VAR was that we're going to use it for decisions that have like massive impact on the game. So it's like penalties, goals, red cards, fine. But whether you get a straight red or two yellows, it's the same impact on the game. I also
0: think, for example, the, the VAR. So referees have get feedback from their linesmen throughout the game and then they make the final decision and that's fine. So maybe it should be a thing where VAR can... Cool. They should be able to use VR as, as a fifth referee, because you've already got fourth official who, the fourth official also advises during games. They should be able to listen to, the VR should be able to intervene without saying you should go to the monitor. They should just be able to give their opinion and just say, yeah, I don't think that's a yellow card. And the ref should be able to listen to yeah. that instead of it being the referee makes the decision and then the VR gives feedback. Well, this is- you should also be allowed to just say no. I, don't, I think that I th- it should be a. Con- it's already a conversation between ref and the two linesmen, and sometimes the fourth official if they've got a better point of view. The VR should be able to explain uh, explain on in that.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And and again, this goes back to the whole thing of we just need more transparency in what's going on because at the moment, in the way that pretty much every time a referee goes over to a monitor, their decision is changing 100%. It makes it look like the VAR is actually the one making the decision and they've just brought the ref over to sort of sell it. Because it's basically, if you don't get sent to a monitor, the VAR has decided it's not going to be changed. And if you do get sent to a monitor, the VAR has decided you need to change your mind. But again, like that might not actually be how it happens. Maybe when the refs do get taken to a monitor, maybe they are actually making the decision right there. But again, we just don't know because we're not getting any window into what's going on. And so that would be another situation where currently I, I feel like it, it stinks because it, it's like the VAR who's not anywhere near the game is the one actually making all, the, all these decisions, but maybe that's not actually the case. And that's another sort of unfair criticism that, that we're giving referees, but they're just not helping themselves because we have no idea. We have no window into what's going on. Yeah.
0: We're going to have to wrap up. Howard Webb is coming in as uh, um the head of the PGMOL. PGML. It is the head of that, isn't it? It's not a different role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thought it might be a slightly different title, but I think it is that, yeah, in October, I think it is. So in in the next few weeks, and I'm sure things will change. We'll see if it's for the better or the worse. But I think, yeah, I think we agree on how how it can change. The,
1: the other thing that's just so strange about that is that the PGMOL in recent years have sort of gone on this tirade of like, we're going to try and be more transparent and admit when we've made mis- made mistakes, which is all yeah, well and just, good. But
0: and they don't do it,
1: it. They don't do it, but also even when they do it, it's pointless because you've not actually told us how the decision was actually made. Like we still don't yeah. really know what that conversation was like. So all you're doing is sort of setting yourselves up to fail because all you're saying is, sorry, we made a mistake, but with no explanation of how you got there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's wrap up. Thank you, Ted, for your question on VR. Thank you, Corey, for your question on uh when we first fell in love with the team. Dio, for your question on Marcus Rashford. Uh, Ethan on De Gea and Debravka, And I might have missed one. I hope I haven't. But patrons, thank all of you for supporting the show and for allowing us to, to do these episodes. Everyone else, thank you for listening. Thank you very much. And if you enjoy the show, if you enjoyed this one, uh leave us a review. If you particularly enjoyed this style of show, we don't normally do episodes entirely based on questions pretty much then let us know we might do more of them Uh, for Jack's thoughts throughout the week or throughout the next couple of weeks with international break stopping United games no game until October the 3rd against Manchester City you can find him on Twitter at
1: at UTDTait T-A-I-T
0: you can find me on Twitter at Robson 64 and you can find the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there. And that's where you'll find information about how to sign up to be a patron. The questions we get asked here are normal questions in, in line with what we get asked in, in bonus Q&As. So if you want to hear more stuff like this, then you can hear them in the patron bonus Q&A after every Tuesday morning show every week uh, from as little as about £1, pound, one pound fifty a week uh, so go to our Twitter at UTD Weekly Pod POD if you want to find out information about how to do that otherwise thank you for listening have a brilliant week goodbye